Hello and welcome to Warwick Classics Podcasting. Money makes the world go round. From buying bread to waging war, you always need money. But money did not always exist. In the classical world, we can witness the birth of the money economy. Scholars who actually deal with ancient coins are called numismatists. Their discipline tells us a lot about ancient societies and how they worked in practical terms. Some aspects seem rather strange. To buy cabbage, you first needed uh, minuscule coins because the face value still corresponded to the value of the metal. Later on, governments resorted to quantitative easing in times of trouble, just as they do today. In other words, they printed money. But when and why did the Greeks start using coins? Could one easily pay in Alexandria and Athens with the same currency? And did the images of the emperor in people's pockets improve his popularity? With me to explore the mammon which fueled ancient economies are two of my colleagues from the Department of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Warwick, Stan Ireland and Kevin Butcher. So Stan, when was money invented and how was it invented? Well, that's a bit of a mystery in some respects because the dating of the earliest money seems to be being brought down and down and down. But generally it was probably towards the end of the 7th century. And although we associate early money with Greece, uh, the earliest coins were not in fact Greek, they were Lydian. That is, they came from one of the native kingdoms in Asia Minor, uh, the capital of which was Sardis, and through the centre of Sardis ran the river Pactolus, which was a lo bore alluvial electrum, a natural mixture of gold and silver. And the earliest references to coins that we have in the archaeological record comes actually from the foundation of the great temple of Artemis at Ephesus as a kind of time capsule in which we see these small blobs of metal, some of them without any markings on, others with a punch, just to say that they've actually gone through a process of being validated. And you basically say the Greeks didn't really invent the money, they got the ideas from the Lydians, is that, yes, is that right? Yes, basically, but then it very quickly spread to the, the Greek colonies on the coast of Asia Minor, because previously the exchange of items for one another had been on the basis of simply weighing out silver, uh, which is a very cumbersome process. If you have a ready-made piece of silver which has a certain value and has a certain size, then you know its value without having to weigh it out very much. So basically first mm -hmm. coins were just um, you know, like a way of knowing I get a gram of metal or an ounce of this or... Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean they were, <coughs> they were in various denominations. The, the, the largest one, the one that would correspond to our pound coin is called the stator, but then you'd have fractions of that all the way down to a 96th which was a, yeah, a tremendously small coin, uh -huh. um, especially since it's been made out of a mixture of gold, which is relatively heavy, and silver. And the proportions were usually about 60% gold and 40% silver. But it was a, to begin with, it was a very natural and uh, chaotic kind of mixture because it was just as it came out of the riverbed. But very quickly it became standardized to the 60-40 mm. ratio. And from there on it spread but once it got to uh, the Greek cities, it, and even before it got to the Greek cities, we find it being differentiated into a gold coinage and a silver coinage. Uh -huh. 
And that makes the silver coins very much more useful because silver is less valuable. Therefore, the smallest coins can you buy could less. Then you could almost buy a cabbage. A cabbage. It yes. would still be too much for a cabbage. It would still be too much for a cabbage, <laughs> but you could buy quite a number of cabbages. Yeah. But it was a way of actually paying for things that brought a convenience that had been previously unknown. I see. And from the colonies on the Asia Minor coast, it then spread across the mainland and blossomed the there out. Yeah. And you've got international currencies yeah. springing up here yeah. and there. We'll come to that in a moment. Kevin, maybe you can just tell us something about the process of uh, making these coins. We already heard that they were validated in the earlier days, um, but at some stage, presumably, like you get images on these coins or texts or how does that work how do you make coins well i mean first of all of course you need your metal so uh -huh. you need to create some kind of standardized objects of, of a standardized weight and of a standardized um, alloy so stan already mentioned this 6040 mixed with the electrum um, some of the coins of course are made of what we would consider to be pure silver gold or, uh, sorry pure silver or pure bullion uh, gold mm -hmm. um, and later on of course we get bronze as well so you have to first of all to make what are called flams or blanks for those are the things that you make the coins out of so this this is just basically like a coin without anything so it's a coin without any design oh, right, okay. to begin with uh, and there are various ways that those things were produced quite often they are cast Mm -hmm. uh, in moulds, so you so have basically you get channels through which the metal flows, and it flows into the heated metal. Yeah. Yes, so you have the heated metal. Uh, another way that they seem to have produced it sometimes is that they basically produced uh, long bars of metal and cut them into little slices, like slices. Well, can you cake. Look, can can you cut metal with the uh, metal? You or can see the cut marks on on the, the sides of the uh, coins. So you can oh, see right, where yeah. sometimes they started <laughs> to cut and they got it in the wrong place, and then <laughs> they moved over and and cut it again. Yeah. So you've got that. Then you produce your blanks, uh, and then you have to strike them between two dies. Normally what you have are... The, all the dies are engraved. So what are, what are dies? So a uh, die is the, is the stamp that you use to mm -hmm. produce the coin. D-I-E. D-I-E, uh -huh. yes. These are engraved by hand, uh, which means, uh, incidentally, that no two dies are ever exactly alike because they're all handmade. And this is one thing that numismatists use sometimes to identify different dies. Basically, you can see, you can distinguish one from another. So you can count how many dies might have been used to produce an issue, or you can sometimes see the sequence of dies mm -hmm. that was used to produce an issue. And so when do, when do we get writings on these coins? I mean, does it say <coughs> one penny, five pounds? Or? You very rarely find denominational marks on the coins. Mm -hmm. Occasionally you do. But most of the, most of the coins, are, uh, if they have inscriptions on them, they're usually inscriptions concerned with authority. So they're naming the minting authority responsible, say the Roman emperor or a Greek city or something of that sort, or the official responsible for mm. producing the coinage. I see. So um, you get them from very early on. Uh, you, you get inscriptions. Um, some of the very earliest coinage, uh, there was one that says, I am the badge of Farnes on it. Uh, uh -huh. We don't know who exactly who he was, <laughs> but <you> know, <laughs> this is obviously a mark of authority. And when was this roughly? So this is what, late 6th century? So nearly for around 500 mm. BC, that sort of thing. 550, 500, maybe yeah. earlier. Yes, exactly earlier, earlier yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe 600, 550. Yeah. yeah, oh wow. So quite early, yeah. 
maybe even earlier. Yeah. So, and how how did these things work? So basically, now we have the coins. <coughs> we have uh, gold coins. We have silver coins. Well, later on, we get bronze coins. Right? Yeah. Later on, you have bronze coins. Going back to the, the, mm. the production process, yeah. though, then what you have is you have a, have two dies normally, uh, and what you're doing basically is crushing the metal blanks between the dies mm. to produce impressions in relief. Yeah. And um, so you have a, a, a process where these things are being stamped out, often very quickly, and sometimes they made mistakes. Oh. Sometimes what happened is that uh, the coin adhered to one of the dies, and they didn't notice, and they put the next blank underneath, and then the die came down again. Yes. And so you and can you get match them. What you then get is a coin with, say, a, a, one positive impression and then a negative impression where the oh, other right. coin has come and hit it <laughs> from the other side. Wow. So basically there's great variety in these coins, but people still would recognize, well, this is a penny, this is you know, like a, a shilling, let's say. To yes, I mean, and we, uh, we so assume that people knew, knew from, the denominations from, from, from their from the weights and their sizes. Their sizes. And like uh, that. Yeah. Um, so w would I be able to, let's say, I get these Athenian coins, could I go <coughs> to, I don't know, Alexandria? I mean, it was a bit later. Or could I just go to Sparta or something like that? Pay with these coins? I mean, Stan, uh, was it like... A there, were <coughs> there were international currencies which were acceptable over large parts of the, um, the Greek world. One of the problems was that the, a lot of cities had different weight standards. So the, the basic coin, say, of, uh, of Corinth, which was actually a three drachma piece, and was half the weight of a four drachma piece produced by the Athenians. So mm -hmm. very often there wasn't a one-to-one -one relationship, and so you'd have to change your money when you went from one to another. Though in some cases, certainly with Athens, they produced so much coinage that they were able, in, in some areas, to swamp the native uh, economy. And it did become rather like the, the, the modern dollar. It was acceptable over a large area, but it never replaced the local currency. Uh -huh. um, when you get into the Hellenistic period, of course, and you mentioned Alexandria, well, that was a different kettle of fish because the, the Ptolemies of Alexandria um, introduced a closed economy. In what society. does that mean? Well, that means that their coinage was on their own standard and any currency coming in immediately had to be handed over and you got it changed officially. You couldn't so actually like use the, your own. It's like Eastern Germany or something like that. You you have to change your money. and Yes, uh, yes. Oh and wow. sometimes this was on a one-to-one -one basis and the state made a bit of a profit thereby. <laughs> theirs was of less weight. Well, as then, as now. <coughs> yes. You know, so, wow. So... Um, what about the Roman world? I mean, one sometimes says, hears that there's this denarius. Uh, I mean, Kevin, could you pay with the denarius? Was that the euro of the ancient world? Uh? Well, some people have drawn a parallel between the denarius and the euro. Um, might be a little bit far-fetched, but certainly the denarius was acceptable over a very large area of the Roman Empire. But, uh, for example, in Egypt, it seems that it probably didn't circulate there. So because of the closed economy. Because of this closed monetary system, yes. Yeah. Uh, so Egypt had its own special coinage in the Roman period, at least in the first three centuries AD, and the denarius didn't circulate there. The same may have been the case in uh, Syria for, well, up until perhaps the middle of the first century AD or perhaps slightly later. Uh -huh. So the denarius didn't circulate everywhere. Yeah. Um, and there were local silver coinages in use as well. So in Egypt, they had a, a special local silver coinage that only circulated in Egypt. I see. In Syria, they had their own local silver coinage, and that only circulated in Syria. 
So they were local currencies, basically, which wouldn't travel very well, and other things which, uh, you know, like, well, you might use or you might at least exchange easily. Is yeah. that right? Yes, yeah, so there, there were more these sort of international currencies yeah. that you could exchange fairly easily over long yeah. distances. Well, I mean, one, one question which I always ask myself is uh, that of, uh, you know, like, the um, disjoining of uh, the value of the metal and actually what is printed on the coin. I understand that in the ancient world, basically face value and real value at some stage went uh, different ways. Is, is that right, that you get inflation, that uh, governments start printing money? Is that, would, yes, would that be originally a, coins had their weight, uh, had their value and the weight of metal as equal. They were worth their weight in metal. Mm -hmm. And this uh, was certainly true of the earliest coins and, and remained true to a large extent of a lot of silver currency. <laughs> the Romans started that way um, with a rather, rather silly system of, uh, of using bronze as a bullion metal. The net result was a standard coin weighing what was maybe 12 ounces. Uh, what does bullion metal mean? Bullion metal are the precious metals of gold uh -huh. and silver. But they used bronze uh -huh. um, because they didn't have very much in the way of gold and silver. And they were they were very uh, and indeed the uh, the whole idea of currency in central Italy was based upon earlier bronze systems. Um, but as to inflation, well, there was inflation, of course. Uh, there was inflation during the Second Punic War, if if that's what you want to call it, when Rome went bankrupt, ran out of metal, and had to start uh, reducing the weight of its coins down to a sixth of what they had been six years earlier. And it's at that point that they introduced. Uh, this coin that you mentioned earlier, the, the denarius, that's when that comes in. It comes in around about 212 BC and it lasts until really the, the third century AD. Um, it falls out because of inflation. The Roman economy, I suppose, ultimately was a deficit economy. It kept going by the ability of the Romans to conquer new areas and, and open up new resources. Uh, when expenditure becomes more than and revenue, then you've got to do something. You can, in our other case, our present case, we can ease our currency by uh, inventing it electronically, <laughs> or you can do as uh, the Weimar Republic did, just keep on printing, uh, printing and printing and printing. <laughs> but of course, you see what happens with that, and you see what happened in Zimbabwe. Yeah, the yeah. Romans did the same kind of thing in the third century, but they were doing it with silver, and that's as far as. Uh, they so basically, the idea is just to, you like to reduce the weight. I mean, yeah, well, right? not to reduce the weight, but to introduce a non-bullion metal. So, into the silver coin, yeah. you introduce copper, and you keep on introducing. So basically, you, you dilute the silver. You content. dilute the silver, and at the, the beginning of the third century, the, the denarius was about fifty percent silver. Um, when you get to about the two seventies, two eighties, it's dipped down in places to. It's dipped down to one. 0.5% silver. Uh -huh. It's been essentially a, a bronze coin in all but name. But yeah, uh, an interesting thing about it, the, the, this debasement, is that the Romans were actually quite clever about this. I mean, it was a, it was a well-known technique. It had been known for uh, millennia, basically, ever since people have been producing silver. But one thing you can do is debase the <coughs> silver quite a lot, and yet it will still 
look like silver on the surface. Uh-huh. Uh, so they had quite a clever way of, do, of doing this. It basically just exploits the properties of, of copper and but silver. But can you do it still when there's only 1.5%? No, b- below about 30%, it's very difficult to, to do this anymore. So the debased quality of the currency became apparent uh, in the 3rd century. Before that, however, it was quite easy to disguise it. So People still thought they had their denarii, only didn't buy as much as it used to do. Is that right? Well, eventually that's what happened, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not so, in fact, in the end, it's not really so much about the, the, the amount of silver in the coins, it's really about how many coins are in mm-hmm. circulation. That's really going to affect it. Yeah. And do you think, uh, for people, I mean, obviously they handle these coins daily and money is important for everybody. So was the, let's say, the image of the emperor or, you know, Brutus on the coin, w- were these important... Uh, Factors uh, for ideologies uh, stand Well, I think they were important for the issuing authority. Uh, whether they were of importance to the user is, is another point, um, because of course uh, it would take time for a coin to reach uh, the local economy, as it were. I mean, most coins were, I think, thought of being produced for paying the army initially, and it then has to filter through to the rest of society, whether people actually, when they got a coin, looked at it, apart from looking at it to see whether it was in fact a proper coin <laughs> and not a forgery, um, then the message that it, uh, it gave might might somehow have lost its currency. Um, but it was ob- it's perfectly obvious that emperors and issuing authorities thought the message was important, otherwise you would not have got coins issued by the Emperor Claudius proclaiming his victories in Britain, his conquest of Britain, issued by Caesarea in Cappadocia in the heartland of, <laughs> of, of uh, Anatolia. So yeah. the, the message is obviously there for a purpose. Um, but I think And that message was in Greek, presumably not in Latin? Is that uh, right? In that case... It's in Latin. It's in Latin, in yes, Latin. because Caesarea... Nobody, nobody did, did people know Latin in Caesarea and Cappadocia? Uh, possibly it did, not. <laughs> it probably, it did, probably didn't matter, but it was an imperial mint. Ah. Uh, it, was one of the ma- you know, it was one of the major silver mints mm. of the Roman East, mm. uh, along with places like, like Antioch. So I think the message is important. Uh, and, and, of course, it does purvey to the, the local or th- local population, for instance, what an emperor looks like, um, uh-huh. or how the emperor wishes to, to, to look. Um, there's, there's the famous coins of Domitian, which, when he was Caesar under his father and, and brother, looked very much like Mr. Punch. <laughs> but when he comes to the throne, he undergoes a face job, and his face is straightened out, and he looks de- decidedly more handsome. <laughs> um, because he could kind of... Uh uh, influence the design, let's say. Oh, I think I think there must have been a certain amount of input at times <laughs> into what people looked like. Uh, some uh-huh. beautification. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can also see people like Nero growing up and getting fatter. So uh, really, yes. Yeah, so you, so he didn't he mind showing so that. He didn't mind showing that so much. And uh, uh-huh. there are uh, you know, emperors like Vespasian who appears uh-huh. as a very rugged. Uh, elderly character on his oh. coins. One thing that they're, they're usually fairly averse to, however, is baldness. Baldness? Oh, yes, there are a couple of emperors who actually appear bald on their coins. Julius Caesar famously hid his behind this wreath that he wears. Oh, this is why we have to read them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, so th- then the, the only two I can think of is an obscure third-century emperor called Gordian I Africanus, who reigned yeah, for three weeks in AD 238, <laughs> who also appears bald. 
and uh, the Emperor Carus in the 3rd century, who also only reigned for a couple of years, mm. he appears bald, but almost everybody else, even if the historical sources say they were bald, like the Emperor Domitian, uh, they, they still, they have, still have a fine head of hair. Yes. Wow. This is the famous case of, of Otho, one of the uh, emperors in the year of the four emperors, 68 to 69, who quite clearly is wearing a toupee. <laughs> really? Uh, yes. Yeah. It's, it's wow. So obviously both of you deal with the numismatics. Just wonder, what are your highlights, let's say, in your career as a numismatist when you made like this great find or discovered something? Can you think of anything uh, which really gave you pause? Or? I don't think there's any um, blinding flash like on the road to Damascus. Oh. Um, but one's always pleased when you find a very good specimen of... Uh, even a, a, a common coin. Um, I remember a great pleasure of what, well, I've got a favourite uh, uh, Roman denarius. It's in, from the Republican period. I've got a couple of other specimens of exactly the same issue. You, you own them yourself? Yes, I have them myself. But um, the one that I'm really proud of is really excellent uh, style. And one's looking for this. So you, can, you know, I always say, you know, some of these coins are not particularly pretty. They're almost as though they are Friday afternoon dyes, <laughs> um, because it, they show scrappiness or a pinched style. And then you get another one, exactly the same issue, where it's an absolutely beautiful dye, and obviously somebody's taken a certain amount of trouble over it, or has had greater skill than the, the guy who's made the other dye. Wow. So getting a good quality coin. Um, with a, a nice, pleasing look to it is is yeah. really always a, a great pleasure. How about you, Kevin? I suppose I did have a kind of road to Damascus moment, but at one point I was I was working on the fineness of Roman silver coinage, uh, and the, the debasements and things mm -hmm. like that, and I was working from basically what is at the time was the standard reference for the fineness of Roman silver coinage. And reading through it, I suddenly experienced a, a kind of dissonance with what was being said in this text, and I just thought, this is complete rubbish, <laughs> um, and uh, it doesn't make any sense at all, and there's something wrong here. So I set up a project to start investigating the, the content of Roman silver coinage myself, mm -hmm. and so since then this has led to really quite a major re reinterpretation of, of debasements of Roman silver coinage, and the face values or the relative values of um, the, the uh, provincial silver coins and the Roman denarius and things like that. So, yeah. So I basically, you, you had some coins, uh, you, you read this book, you saw, well, the theory doesn't correspond to to the reality, and then you went out and uh, yes. read it. Or at least the theory didn't seem to make any sense. Make to any me, sense. Right? Everybody yeah. else had accepted it, but I thought yeah. there was something wrong. Wow. So. so that's um, that's always a pleasure when you kind of can reject the field. I just wonder at the end of our podcast whether I could uh, maybe first ask them, I mean, Mori has been singled out uh, in the recent research assessment exercise for its excellent in numismatics, uh, but as I understand it, it's also one of the few places where undergraduates can get their hands on some ancient coins. Uh, so how is the subject taught here in Warwick stand? Well, what we do, um, it's, um, it's usually limited to a small number of, of students because we are handling coins and they need to, to be passed around. Um, but it's through the medium basically of lectures, but the lectures are more like seminars and we, we talk about them. Um, so they get some information uh, where I can, I let them see the real thing. I mean, it's always nice to put into somebody's hand 
something that was made over 2,000 years ago uh, and to point out to them that they may be holding a tetradram of Tyre, which is what Judas Iscariot was probably uh, paid in, or that they're holding a small coin known as a Prutar, otherwise known as a mite, and uh, it just happens to have been issued by a man called Pontius Pilate, and it has a date on it, and it, that date is AD 30, and you begin uh -huh. to wonder. So, you know, one is made immediately, or immediately taken into the realms of mm. antiquity, because these are the most accessible yeah. ancient artifacts that you can get your hands on. So you on. have one of the 30 pieces of silver, so to speak. I have a own. piece of silver, but it isn't one of the 30. <laughs> it's, 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 it's older than that. Ah, oh, I see. Um, well, I also know that um, postgraduate studies is really developed here at Warwick, and uh, since you come in, uh, uh, numismatics has been put, uh, so to speak, on the map for our postgraduate, st postgraduate degrees. Could you just say something about this, uh, Kevin? Uh, Yes, I mean there are there are basically three different ways you can do it. There are the, the, the research degrees. So you, if you have a particular project that you want to pursue research at either the PhD or the MA level, um, we are developing quite a good resource here for uh, people who want to study numismatics. Uh, we're developing a fairly specialised numismatic library. If you want to go and uh, look at coins and study major collections, of course, the Ashmolean in Oxford is not very far away, mm -hmm. or the British Museum, and again, we can kind of facilitate access to those collections, or I mean, even the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge is not that far. Mm -hmm. So there are major collections that you can gain access to for study. Um, there are various specialisations that you might choose to, to follow. You might specialise in studying the coinage of a particular mint. Yeah. Or a mint means basically a place where coins were made. Sorry, a place where coins are made. Um, or look at uh, certain aspects of ancient society or iconography through coinage. Yeah. So that's on the research degree side. There's an MA and then there's, there's, an, also there's the taught MA in uh, ancient visual and material culture. Uh -huh. Yes, and this has a numismatic component as well. And again, you can uh, specialise in numismatics for uh, your main piece of research, or you can you can take a, uh, one of the courses offered in numismatics at the MA level. Again, you will be um, expected to do some some piece of research in numismatics. Again, it could be specialising in looking at a mint or um, some aspect of ancient coinage, or even the, the history of numismatics, the way that numismatics numismatic thought developed from mm. the Renaissance. Mm. Well, so basically you can do numismatics on the undergraduate level, on the uh, postgraduate level, and um, we have two uh, of the world experts here, and it was a real pleasure to talk to them, to talk of, to you, so thanks a lot uh, for your Thank time. You. Thank you. Thanks. Uh,